0: Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to the Gospel of Mark this morning, uh, Lord willing, our plan is to finish up our study in the Gospel of Mark. And so our text today is Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. So if you have a Bible, I'll ask that you turn there, and if you're able to do so, ask that you might stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Give ear to the reading of God's Word, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had saw him, those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name, They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, Lord willing, it's our hope to finish up our series through the Gospel of Mark. We've been preaching through Mark for about just over two and a half years, if you can believe that. You know, the old saying, time flies when you're having fun. Uh, Part of me feels like it couldn't have been that long, and part of me can't believe we're already finishing up this, this book. Now, according to many scholars, we probably should have finished up our study through Mark's Gospel a couple weeks ago, when we looked at chapter 16 verses 1 through 8, and that's because here in these verses that I just read this morning, we are faced with what one commentator calls, quote, the gravest textual problem in the New Testament. There's, there's, you might have noticed in your Bible that it might be in brackets or there might be a note saying that some texts don't contain that. In fact, there are at least three different variations, uh, of the ending of Mark that are found in some of the, the old manuscripts the old Greek manuscripts. Some, some of those manuscripts don't include 9 through 20 at all. So some manuscripts, they end the Gospel of Mark at verse 8, as strange as it might seem to say. And so in those, te- in those cases, they would say the last verse of Mark is, and they went out, the women did, they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. They would make that the ending of the Gospel of, of Mark. Uh, the The vast majority of the old manuscripts, though, do include these verses that we read verses nine through twenty there is even another one that uh, one version which is it 's often called the shorter the so called shorter ending of Mark that has this as the last verse or at least includes it it says this, but they reported briefly to Peter and those with him all that they had been told, and after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation now that that particular ending so-called of mark has so little manuscript support uh that it's it's really only included if you know as a footnote if it's even included at all in some of our english translations and most of the time those words that i just read are actually added between verses eight and what follows in nine through twenty so i don't know why they call it the shorter ending it should be called the longest ending if they really were going to include that Uh, Now, there are a great many scholars in our day uh, and in days past, even good, solid, reformed, believing scholars who don't believe that verses 9 through 20 were part of the original gospel of Mark. Now, such scholars contend that these verses uh, that we're looking at this morning, they say that they were not written by Mark. And so if they're not written by Mark, they believe they don't belong in the canon of Scripture. And that's why in many of your Bibles uh, you might see verses 9 through 20 included in brackets where it might even be down in a footnote at the bottom of the page or there might be some kind of note uh, that the ESV says. If you're looking at the ESV it'll say something like some of the earliest manuscripts don't include 16, 9 to 20. Now among the group of people that don't believe these verses belong in scripture there are two basic views. Some believe that verse 8 is the, is the conclusion of Mark's gospel. That's the way he intended to to end it now, that seems like a rather abrupt and unlikely way for Mark to conclude the gospel, his gospel account. Others believe that Mark may have actually written a longer ending, but that somehow this ending got lost, and we don't know what it was. Well, we might never know what it may have been; uh, it's never to be seen again. But it, you know, when they say that, it's as if they can't help but acknowledge that something's missing if something doesn't come after verse eight. And this is, this is what many of the conservative Reformed scholars believe that don't hold to verses 9 through 20. They say, well, verse 8's not really the right ending of Mark. He wrote something else, but we don't know what it was. That somehow God wasn't able to preserve his word uh, the way that it was originally intended and written, or that for some reason God allowed that to be, uh, to be missing. They surmise that that original ending must have been lost. Some have even said that Mark may have died before he finished writing it. But it's as if they can't help themselves. They know something isn't right if verse 8 is the last part of the text. And I would say, shouldn't the simplest solution be the one that's accepted instead? That if there's something missing without verses 9 through 20, perhaps since most manuscripts have it, that maybe the simplest answer is that that is the proper ending of Mark's gospel. Some of them will say that, well, the vocabulary and the style is different from Mark. Uh, now, uh, sometimes I, I almost laugh when I read things like that because there might be some slight variances in words that are found there that aren't found in other places of Mark, but that doesn't mean that Mark didn't write it. It doesn't, I don't see how they can, it just certainly doesn't prove anything like that at all. Let's say, let's say that Mark died for hypothetical purposes. Let's say Mark's in the middle of writing the Gospel of Mark, gets to verse 8, and something happens, he keels over, he, you know, something happens, he's taken away in chains or something, and he can't finish writing the gospel, and someone else came in from the church and finished it, and the church accepted it. Has it ever happened in scripture before? Think of the book of Deuteronomy. The first five books of your Bible writ- were written by whom? Moses. But what's found at the end of Deuteronomy? The death of Moses. I don't know about you, I'm pretty sure Moses didn't write about his death after he died. And yet we accept the ending of Deuteronomy as scriptural, don't we? Now, I'm not saying Mark died. I'm just saying, what if there was a, you know, the apostle Paul? The apostles often used, uh, they call it an amanuensis. It's another, it's a, like a person taking the notes for you. And they may have used their own, their own vocabulary and whatnot to write what they wrote. And we still accept those things as scripture, don't we? So there's all kinds of explanations that don't require excluding verses 9 through 20. Now, verses 9 through 20 are missing from mainly two important early manuscripts. Out of the hundreds and hundreds that we have, there are really two, two important ones, they say, that don't have it. They are called A and B, clever names, or Aleph and B. They're also called uh, Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus. It always sounds better when it's in Latin, right? But they are found in the overwhelming majority of Greek manuscripts and even the Latin manuscripts that we have in existence today. Not only that, but... The verses at the end of the Gospel of Mark, verses 9 through 20, they're actually quoted by some of the early church fathers all the way back to the mid-second century. In other words, they were quoted by someone such as Justin Martyr around AD 150 and Irenaeus in AD 180, somewhere around that. So as early as the second century, some very big names of the early church fathers were aware of the ending of Mark and quoted it and quoted it as scripture. I think when you look at all that, uh, for those reasons and other reasons we don't have time to go into during the sermon, uh, I believe it's right that we look at Mark verses 16, 16 verses nine through 20 as scripture and treat it as such, that it's right for us that we can and should preach and teach this ending of Mark as being scriptural. I believe they're there for our benefit. These verses are there for our benefit. Uh, not only that, but as we're going to see, this, everything taught in these verses is found elsewhere in our Bibles. There's nothing whatsoever in them that, that we should find objectionable in any way. And I believe they are scripture. And so we're going to uh, sin boldly, as they say, and preach a text that some would say does not belong. Well, the first thing we see in our text this morning is the appearances of the risen Christ. Three different appearances of, of the risen Christ uh, that Mark tells us about. The first one in verses 9 through 11 is he appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to her first and then to two of his disciples while they were on the Emmaus Road in verses 12 to 13. And then finally he appears to the apostles. He calls them the eleven themselves. And we might be surprised at that ordering. We might think, well, why wouldn't he go to the apostles first? If if we were going to write it and make it up, we wouldn't have him go to Mary Magdalene first. We'd have him go right to the eleven and then go on down the line. But the first person that Jesus chose to reveal himself to after the resurrection was mary magdalene she is the one of all the people on this earth at the time that got the honor and privilege of seeing the lord after his resurrection in verses 9 through 11 mark says this he says now when he that's christ when he rose early on the first day of the week that's sunday "uh, he appeared first to mary magdalene and mark adds from whom he had cast out seven demons she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept but when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her they would not believe it. And so Mary this one from whom Jesus had cast out seven demons was the first to see the risen Christ not the not the disciples not uh, not even Mary the mother of Jesus like we we would never have done it this way we never would have made it up this way, but Mary Magdalene, what a marvel of the grace and kindness of, of our Savior that He lavished upon this formerly demon-oppressed woman who was almost certainly an outcast from society because of that. Somebody we would have probably written off. And yet what does Jesus do? He goes to her first. She's the first one that gets to see Him. Now some, some who doubt this text's, uh, inspiration they say that they find it strange that, that Mark would suddenly introduce Mary Magdalene this way as as if we hadn't heard her name before. Because in the previous passages, in, in the end of chapter 15 and the beginning of chapter 16, we were already told about her at least three times her, her name is mentioned. And yet here, Mark suddenly says that she's, quote, the one, quote, from whom he had cast out seven demons. And so they say, why would Mark suddenly introduce her this way when he would already mentioned her in the previous verses but I think in telling us about her this way now we're not aren't we shown a little glimpse again into the kindness and grace of Christ toward this former outcast it's as if he's wanting to emphasize for us this is the person who got to see him first and then on top of that I think maybe here we're given a little bit of an insight into the rejection of her testimony by the disciples you know she goes and tells them and what do they say? They don't believe her. And maybe part of the reason they didn't believe her is because, well, you know, you know her past. You know how Mary used to be. You know, they don't, it doesn't say this in the text, but that, that might be a reason why Mark brings that up as one of the reasons, one of the rationale they might have thought of and used why they rejected her, her testimony. Now they were, these disciples were in the midst of mourning and weeping over Christ's death. Days later, it's not like they didn't love the Lord. They're mourning and weeping and here she comes. Knocking at the door and telling them you're not going to believe this, but he's alive. Well, what happens? They don't believe this. They don't. They don't believe him. It's as if remember the, the story in the book of Acts when Peter was in jail. Her- you know Herod had killed James, the brother of John, and then he grabs Peter. He's like, oh, the crowds are going to love this. I got me a big one. I got Peter. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to bring him out and make a big show of it. And what happens? The church was keeping an earnest prayer for for Peter, and so an angel comes. I'll I'll, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. Right, the angel comes. Gets Peter out, Peter thinks he's having a wild dream, and then there he is at the door of the house where they're praying for him. So he knocks on the door, and the little girl comes and answers the door and he says, It's me, you gotta let me in, you know, it's Peter. And she's so excited she doesn't let him in. She runs back and tells everybody and breaks up the prayer meeting, Hey guys, Peter's at the door and they say, Not now, we're praying for Peter <laughs> You know, they they say in fact they say, Maybe it's his angel, they mean it's his ghost. Maybe maybe we're wasting our breath and he's already dead. You know, not just mostly dead. He's dead, and now his ghost is at the door. Um, and then eventually, they finally let him in. Um, well, it's kind of like that? They're weeping and praying, and or, or they're weeping and mourning over over Jesus' death, even while they're being told he's alive. And instead of being rejoicing about it, they they don't believe it. They can't begin to believe uh, her report. They would not believe it. Mark says, verse eleven. Well, the second group, maybe the second group might do any better. Maybe, probably not. Mark says not. The second group that got to witness the appearance of Christ is these two disciples who are on the Emmaus Road. Now, if you look at Luke chapter 24, uh, there's a much more detailed and longer version of this account. Mark summarizes it for us. Now, the fact that Mark summarizes, you know, Luke spends about half of the final chapter of the Gospel of Luke on these two men on the road when Jesus meets them, right? Mark spends, what, two verses on it? He barely has time to talk about it at all. The very fact that, that Mark summarizes in such a short space, something that Luke spent so much time on, frankly, to me, is another indication that Mark's really the author. Because what does Mark do? It's the shortest gospel of them all. And Mark has a, a very notable tendency of summarizing things briefly. He's all, he always seems to be in a hurry to move things along. And so this is something that Mark, I believe, would would poss- would very much have done. Mark is known for his brevity. One well, verses 12 to 13, this is what he says. After these things, he, that's Jesus, appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country and they went back and told the rest. But what happens again? But they did not believe them. Strike two, right? Again, Luke's account adds that those two disciples themselves whom Jesus met on that road uh, also had not believed when they were told. The women came and told them, they tell Jesus on that road, you know, that these things happened to Jesus. And then the women came and told us that he was alive. But, but did they believe them? No. They were still dejected. They were still walking on the Emmaus Road thinking that the jig was, was up. They had been told by Mary Magdalene and the other women but didn't believe at first. And again, uh, once again, when they in turn told the rest of the disciples, verse 13 says they, the rest of the disciples, didn't believe them. So at first they don't believe. Then Jesus straightens them out, and they see Jesus. Then they tell the rest of the the disciples, and what happens? They still don't believe. It's passing it on. People don't believe what they're hearing. Well, finally, the risen Christ appeared to the the eleven. That's the apostles themselves in verse 14. Uh, But when the Lord Jesus appeared to the apostles, what is his response to them? It says, he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him or saw him after he had risen. What a strange thing for us to hear that even even the apostles at first didn't believe. If anybody should have believed, it would have been the 11. 12 minus Judas, right? They they would have believed. And it says, in fact, in Matthew 28, the ending of Matthew's gospel, it sounds very similar. It says that you know, when they saw Jesus with their own two eyes, like they weren't just hearing a report, they saw him in front of them. It says, they worshipped him and then Matthew adds, "But some doubted." Can you imagine they're looking right at him, and some of them, Thomas, and maybe others, are going, "There's no way. There's no way he's actually standing right in front of us." Maybe I you know, I, maybe I uh, had a, a rough night's sleep or something. I don't know what they thought was happening, but they they doubted. They couldn't quite bring themselves, at first anyway, to believe that Jesus was still alive. Now. Now, think about it. That's the consistent pattern in all these instances here at the ending of the Gospel of Mark is that the disciples at first refuse to believe when they hear that Jesus had really risen from the dead. You know, they, they may have been 2,000 years ago, but they're not that different from you and me. They're, we, we tend to sometimes to have a chronological snobbery about us. We think, well, we're modern people. We have remote controls and microwaves and smartphones and space shuttles and all kinds of things. So, you know, we, we're a little harder to fool then back then, those 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 poor country folk from Galilee, they believe anything because they were, you know, they were old two thousand years ago, and they're they're not as smart as we are, uh, but they're, they're the same as us. They really are. We people haven't really changed that much, and they had trouble believing at first. And frankly, I think this also is an argument in favor of the veracity of these verses as being scripture. Who would have written this this way? If you're if you're going to make up scripture, are you going to make it up poorly? Are you going to say? The disciples are all a bunch of knuckleheads, and when they hear about the resurrection, nobody believes. You'd say, they were waiting at the tomb. They knew he was going to come out. We'd make them, you know, without warts. We'd make them the superheroes of the faith. But no, they're just, they're dumb like us. They hear and they don't believe at first until Jesus finally convinces them. Now think about this. Jesus told the the disciples, the apostles, at least three times in the Gospel of Mark, in his account, before it happened that he was going to be rejected that he was going to be killed and rise again the third day he does it in Mark chapter 8 the next chapter Mark 9 verse 31 and once again Mark 10 verses 33 to 34 three times he pulls them aside and doesn't tell them a parable you know sometimes Jesus told parables and people didn't get it and sometimes that was the point he didn't tell them a parable he didn't say this guy is going to plant a seed and it looks dead and then it's going to rise he says I'm going to die They're going to betray me, hand me over, kill me, and then I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day. Got it? Don't get it. Does it again and again. And after after it happens, they still don't believe when they hear about it. They didn't believe when they were told that Jesus had risen from the dead. Well, that brings us to the second thing in verses 15 through 18 where we see not just the appearances of the risen Christ, but the apostles of the risen Christ. What does Jesus do? If you if you and I were the Lord, thankfully we're not, and what happened here happened to us that we're showing up and they're not believing and we're telling people to tell their people and they're not believing, we'd probably look for somebody else. We'd say, You know what, maybe I maybe I picked the wrong guys. Why don't I just start anew with twelve other guys, we'll start fresh, find some more bright people and and we'll we'll make the church that way. No. What does Jesus does Jesus cast the the eleven onto the scrap heap? Does he say finally, Okay, I've had my patience, but that's it. Now I'm I'm done. No. In his mercy and kindness, not just to Mary Magdalene, but also to these sheep for whom he had laid down his life, he still appoints them to be his apostles. And he sends them out in verse 10 to what? Proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Even though in their weakness, they they had trouble believing for a time, they still got to share in the task of making disciples of all the nations. They still got to be his apostles an honor that only 11 plus Paul got uh, to do in Matthias as well very few people had this this honor and this 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 commission and yet they still got to share in that JC Ryle uh, remarks on these verses he says that we should take note quote how much weakness there is sometimes in the faith of the best christians that we should look we should look at these verses and the disciples and their struggles to believe in things and take take that to heart and take that as a lesson for us, he goes on to say in that same section, he says, Let us learn from the unbelief of the apostles a useful practical lesson for ourselves. Let us let us cease to feel surprised when we find doubts arising in our own heart. Let us cease to expect perfection of faith in other believers. We are yet in the body. We are men of like passions with the apostles. We must count it no strange thing if our experience sometimes like theirs And if our faith, like theirs, sometimes gives way. He says, let us resist unbelief manfully. Let us watch and pray and strive to be delivered from its power. But let us not conclude that we have no grace because we are sometimes harassed with doubts, nor suppose that we have no part or lot with the apostles because at seasons we feel unbelieving. Have you ever felt that you struggle with doubt of your faith? Guess what? The apostles did too. It doesn't mean you don't believe. It doesn't mean that you are graceless, that God is not at work in you. And so we should take heart for ourselves and we should also be patient with one another. God God is not done with us yet. Years ago, I was at a, uh, when I was in my college years, uh, we did a a retreat. Another friend of mine always says, Christians don't retreat, they advance. But we, we went on a retreat. And our pastor did a, like an icebreaker game and he said, everybody take a piece of paper and write one word that describes you. And of course all of us guys are all, you know, one word. And I, you know, I forget what I wrote. It was probably something dumb, but there was a, a girl there that, uh, her, her word was unfinished. I thought, wow, you know, in Philippians 1 6, what does it say? God's not done with you yet, but he's going to be. He who began a good work in you will do what? Will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God finishes what he starts. But none of us are done yet. When we're at home in heaven, he'll be done. But until that time, we have to be patient with ourselves and patient, I think, with with each other here in the the church. Now, if if in this life we who are in Christ by faith will often find ourselves crying out with that man that Mark talks about to us in Mark 9.24. Remember he said, I believe, and then what does he say? Help my unbelief. That's us. That's going to be you and I until the day we're home with the Lord in glory. Help, I believe, help my unbelief. There's a part of me that still struggles. Help me with that as well. Let us not despair of the Lord, not only saving us by his grace, but also using us for his glory by his grace as well. And notice the Lord's words to the apostles in verse 16. Whoever believes and is baptized Will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Make no mistake, these words are found here at the end of Mark's Gospel in order to press upon us, upon you and I, the great need of faith in Christ. These, ver- this, these words are here for a reason. See how many times in our text, in verses 9 through 20, how many times does Mark speak of believing or not believing? How many times do you see those words popping up in, these, in this short text? by my count, at least six times in verses 11 to 16. Six times in seven verses, Mark mentions, by the inspiration of the Spirit, believing or not believing. It must be for a reason. And then he he comes here in verse 16 and says, whoever believes and is baptized at the preaching of the gospel, right, will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. I think Mark is trying to press a point upon us, isn't he? He's trying to make this as plain as he can. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Do you believe? Are you trusting in Christ for your salvation from sin this morning? If that's, the, if that describes you, you will be saved. Why does he add baptism? That might make us nervous. Does baptism save? Is anybody saved by baptism? By the, by the sprinkling of water or dunking in water, whatever, whatever way you might have had it done uh, if you're baptized? Does baptism save? No no but if you're if you're a believer what 's expected for you to do? what is the most natural thing that you should do in obedience to the command of Christ is to be baptized Some of you were baptized when you were an infant some of you were baptized even recently uh, as adults and as, as converts um, but the baptism doesn 't save so what does he say those who don 't believe he doesn 't say whoever does not believe and is not baptized will be condemned that 's assumed you know why would you be baptized if you don't if you don't believe, if you're a, if you're an adult. But if you believe in Christ, if you're trusting in Him, you will be saved. You can know, you can know that you're saved right now. You can know that. You can be assured of that. You can be assured that you will be found on that final day to be in a state of salvation when the Lord comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead. That's an amazing thing to have assurance of. You can know that you're right with God. How? believe the gospel believe in jesus christ and trust in him and what about those who don't believe what does mark say now i pray that doesn't describe anybody here this morning i pray those words whoever does not believe will be condemned i hope that doesn't describe anybody here today it doesn't have to if you turn to christ by faith he says those who don't believe will be condemned they will they will fall at the judgment of god because they're still in their sins when Christ has come to take away our sin, to save us from our sin, if we just have faith in Him. Well, verses seventeen to eighteen, this is really the maybe the odd section to some people. Some people find things in verses seventeen to eighteen to be kind of objectionable. Some even find these things. Uh, they point to these to these verses as their rationale, part of their rationale for for not accepting this ending of Mark. They say, "Oh, you know, uh, what does it say? It says these signs will accompany those who believe." In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. You know, some down through the years have been so um, bold and strange as to take up the practice of snake handling on the basis of this verse, one of these verses. You know, the, have you ever heard of that? People still do that in some places, these odd, odd practices that people do. But, you know, is that... Is that a reason to reject this passage? Because some people twist it and use it in odd ways. uh, This morning, I think I told somebody, you know, if you were to take every verse of Scripture that someone twisted to mean something that it doesn't mean, or to apply it in a way it was never meant to be applied, you'd have a really short Bible if you cut all those out, wouldn't you? I'm not sure how many pages we'd be. A lot easier to read the Bible in a year. Be pretty short, right? Uh, so we shouldn't take those kinds of abuses and twistings of Scripture, and, and lead that cause that to lead us to to not accept what what the Scripture says. Doesn't the record of the early church in the book of Acts not say all these same things? Does it not tell us these very things actually took place in the lives of the apostles? Remember, this this promise isn't about you and me. This doesn't mean that you and I are going to go out and, you know, get bit by a rattlesnake and, ah, nothing. It doesn't mean that we're going to drink poison and not die. It means the apostles, in a sense, and this is somewhat true of us as well, until it was their time, they were indestructible. Until God allowed them and in His perfect wisdom and providence, uh, had their time to be at an end on this earth and their work in the ministry, they weren't, nothing could stop them. Paul was stoned to death. And what happened? Sounds like something out of one of the Terminator movies. He gets back up and goes into the city and preaches again. Like nothing could, nothing could kill him until it was a shipwreck didn't kill him, beatings and stonings didn't kill him until it was his time to go. Did the apostles cast out demons? They did. They did that in the Gospels. They did it in Acts chapter five, Acts nineteen. Did the apostles speak in other languages? Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost. Was it was an apostle ever bitten by a poisonous serpent and lived? The Apostle Paul had that very thing happen in the last chapter of the book of Acts. Acts 28, verses 3 to 6. Remember, they were building a fire, they were shipwrecked, and he reaches for some of the wood, and what's in the wood? A snake. And what happens? He shakes it off into the fire, and the people around him thought he was a god. They're, Whoa, what in the world? What happened here? He did not die from it. Did the Apostles lay hands on the sick and heal them? They certainly did. Acts five twelve even goes as far as to say, it, it says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. These things were signs, Paul calls them the signs of a true apostle, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. These things weren't given to the church at large. They were given to the the apostles themselves. And Mark even tells us why in verse 20 in our text, those signs were to, quote, confirm the message. When the gospel was first going out, when the New Testament was first being written by the apostles, those signs of an apostle were the, were the confirmation given by God that people would say, oh, this is real. This message is real. Well, now we have this, the completed canon of scripture. We no longer need those things, those confirm, outward confirmations of, of the gospel and the good news of scripture. Well, the last thing that Mark speaks of here in our text is the ascension of Christ. The ascension of Christ. Now, the ascension of Christ is one of the most important truths found in scripture. It's confessed by us every time we recite the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. It's a, if you read through the book of Hebrews, if you really think about it, the ascension might be the, the central topic of Hebrews. Because much of what Hebrews talks about is Christ's active, ongoing ministry for his people at the right hand of God in inter- interceding for us as our great high priest. The ascension of Christ, I think, though, is sadly one of the most neglected and unappreciated doctrines in all the Bible. It's one of those truths that we don't give much thought to, although the Bible brings it up again and again. Notice that Mark tells us that after Jesus had spoken to the apostles, it says he was, uh, verse 19, he was, quote, taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. So what does that mean? Does that mean he's done? You know, verse 1 of Mark, chapter 1, said it was the beginning of the gospel, and now, uh, now Mark's point is Jesus went to the right hand of God and now he's all done. Is Jesus finished working now? No. No, Jesus is not finished working now at all. He was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, but what does he say in verse 20? Mark says, And they, the apostles, they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So, you know, Jesus told them, go and preach. What did they do? They went, they went and preached everywhere. But that isn't all that Mark says, is it? He says he also adds that while they were preaching, what was happening? When the apostles went in obedience and preached the gospel of Christ, what else was happening while they were preaching? It says, the Lord worked with them. The risen and ascended Christ worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. When they were preaching, Jesus was at work. From the right hand of God the Father Almighty, he was still at work in their preaching. Now, we often talk about the Lord using people and working through them. The Lord was working through them. He was also working what is what's the word Mark uses? He was working with them, almost side by side with them as they were going out with the gospel. Paul elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 3 9 says, We are God's fellow workers. Certainly true of the apostles, and in some ways still a true of us every time the gospel is preached. What an amazing statement for Paul to make. What a great privilege it is and a consolation and encouragement in all the work we do in making disciples of all the nations and preaching the gospel that we are fellow workers with God. Whenever the gospel is truly preached, truly and sincerely preached, who else is at work? Who's really the one at work? The, the risen and ascended Christ is at work through his spirit, working through his word to save the lost and to build us up in our most holy faith. The risen and ascended Christ, as Acts 1.1 tells us, is, is not sitting on his hands. He's seated, but he's not sitting on his hands. He's still busy doing and teaching through his church, through the gospel. He's seeing to it the disciples are made. How is it possible the disciples can be made? How is it possible that one single sinner hears the gospel and ever believes and comes to faith in Christ for salvation? Is it because the preachers are so clever and so uh, gifted and, and, you know, gifted in oratory and whatnot? No, no preacher can ever preach the dead to life except Christ himself. You know, in the Great Commission in, in Matthew's Gospel at the end of Matthew 28, and when Jesus said, you know, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, therefore go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing and teaching. What's the last thing he says? And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Why does he say that? what's happening in our text he's not physically here anymore he's at the right hand of God but he is here with us working by his spirit through his word and so Acts 1.1 Luke says he implies very strongly that the, the former gospel the book of Luke was quote the beginnings of you know, what you know it's what Jesus began to do and teach what's he implying about the book of Acts and about our present day now the book of Acts was about the continuing doings and teachings of Jesus from the right hand of God and he still does it every time the gospel, the word of God, is preached. If the risen and ascended Christ were not with us, working with us, the task of making disciples would be an impossible task for us. We might as well just close the doors. It makes no sense for us to keep working, but uh, we would have every reason to be discouraged from the work. But the risen Christ, he lives. The ascended Christ is now reigning, and he still works with his church through the outward and ordinary means of grace, especially the preaching of the word of God and the gospel itself. And so here at the end of the gospel of Mark in Mark 16, the, the, it kind of comes full circle, doesn't it? In Mark 1, one, the very first phrase you read in the gospel of Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, here in Mark 16.15, what do you see? You see Jesus telling the disciples, the apostles, to go into the world and proclaim what? The gospel to all create the whole creation. So Mark begins and ends uh, his gospel uh, with the message of the gospel. Now we've we've just now finished reading and preaching through the the beginning of the gospel of Christ, and now we've come to the end of the book. Not that we'll never refer to it again, but the end of Mark's gospel is just the beginning, isn't it? It's kind of his point. The ending of Mark's gospel is the be- it's really just the beginning of the gospel and of of, of Christ at the right hand of God, risen and ascended, preaching and working through his His word. We are called as the church of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ to carry on the work of the gospel, preaching it to all the world, both to our neighbors here in Ramona and wherever else we find them, as well as to to support the work of the gospel on the other side of the world. Maybe God is going to call one of you to be a missionary. You ever thought about that? Maybe God might call one of you to be an evangelist or a pastor somewhere else. It's very possible that he might do just that. And as If that happens, who's who's working with you to do that? The risen and ascended Christ is the one who makes those things come to pass. And so in doing that, we have the assurance, the great privilege and joy of being called, to use Paul's words, God's fellow workers. Because we know the risen and ascended Christ works with us by his grace whenever his word is proclaimed. To him be all the glory for all eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this day that uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, who you sent for our salvation, is is no longer still in the grave, that he rose on on the third day, on Sunday, the first day of the week. He rose from the dead for our justification and to, and to show, to demonstrate that he's the Son of God with power. And Lord, we thank you that you have lifted him up to your right hand, that he right now reigns over all things as our great prophet, priest, and king, we thank you that a Psalm 110 tells us that you say to, say to him to sit at your right hand until you make his enemies a footstool for his feet. And even now, through the preaching of your word especially, you are making his enemies a footstool for his feet by converting the lost, by converting a great multitude that we will not be able to count on that last day in heaven, uh, by converting the lost and by defending his people. Uh, Lord, we thank you that Jesus is is active, that even now he ever lives to intercede for us at your right hand, and for that reason he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to you through faith in your Son. Lord, we thank you that that Jesus is continuing to be at work even now, not just in his interceding for us on our behalf at your right hand, but even also in making sure that his word, the word of his gospel, the gospel of life, eternal and abundant, that it goes forth with power by the work of his Spirit, Whenever the word of God is preached, we thank you that you are at work within us, and we also thank you, Lord, that you you finish what you start. We ask that you would use us in any way you see fit to, to preach the gospel to our neighbors, to anyone that you, you put across our path. and We pray that you might convert the lost and build your church. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.